This is your public radio station, 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. Happy Friday. Later today, the University of Arkansas volleyball team does something for the first time in nine years, play in the NCAA tournament. Arkansas faces the Utah State Aggies in a first-round matchup in Eugene, Oregon. The winner advances to Sunday's second round, also to be played in Oregon. Now, our usual Friday star would take place with Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics, but that's not happening this Friday. Michael will be back with us to review a week's worth of news next week. We'll begin with a story about helping to alleviate loneliness. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs is deploying the Compassionate Contact Corps to combat veteran loneliness. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Frelick reports. The Compassionate Contact Corps matches U.S. veterans experiencing loneliness or social isolation with trained volunteers who work to ease such conditions. The program's rolling out across veterans' health care systems. And to encourage wider adoption, Deputy Director for VA Center for Development and Civic Engagement, Prince Taylor, recently hosted a virtual media roundtable. A lot of clinicians around the world, including here at VA, have always recognized that loneliness was a problem with their patients, but they didn't really have a non-clinical arrow in their quiver, primarily because loneliness is not a clinical condition. But what a growing body of research continues to show us is that there is a clear connection between loneliness and clinical conditions such as depression, suicidal ideations, and mortality. The new program, first initiated across HVA systems in response to the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown, is now in place at more than 80 VA facilities. Volunteers and veterans are matched based on common interests. Trained volunteers provide support by making periodic phone calls. Program referrals are made from VA providers in several clinical programs. Thankfully, we were able to galvanize the power of our volunteer workforce to meet the need that many of us didn't even realize was so acute. So we started a social prescribing program that we call Compassionate Contact Corps at about eight of our sites around the country that March. And by April, um, we knew we had something special and worth spreading. The VA has hosted over 60 internal meetings with leaders and clinicians and briefed veteran service organizations, social work leaders, AARP, and more to spread the word about the Compassionate Contact Corps. Dr. Indira Subramanian, a neurologist for Greater Los Angeles VA Healthcare System, was also on the call. So loneliness affects um, health in many ways. It can affect um, stress levels and hormones. It affects immunity. It can affect um, our ability to um, focus on things. It actually makes us focus on um, uh, socially threatening stimuli, make us hypervigilant. It actually puts us at increased risk for dementia, and it actually can disrupt um, our sleep and circadian rhythms. Circadian rhythms govern sleep patterns. Subramanian, an expert in integrative medicine, says exercise can ease loneliness. So can meditation and a healthy diet, she says. But direct intervention to locate veterans struggling with loneliness can be facilitated through screening. We want to um, be proactive and asking questions because people who are lonely don't come to us and tell us that they're lonely. So we really have to screen with a couple of key questions and we can find those in the UCLA loneliness questionnaire. Um, these are things like, I feel isolated, I sometimes feel left out, things like that. These are simple questions that we can all ask. And then we can proactively approach patients who um, identify as lonely And um, I love this concept of uh, one approach, which is really that of social prescribing. So I, as a clinician, can identify patients at risk for loneliness, and then I can literally prescribe social connection as I would a pill. Social prescribing involves primary care professionals who refer patients to local non-clinical services to support their health and well-being. Examples may include civilian volunteer groups, creative arts activities, collective gardening projects, group cooking classes, and various sports. But now, veterans can take advantage of peer programs created especially for them, available through local Compassionate Contact Corps-trained volunteers. Again, Prince Taylor. You get these people together, these veterans together, to just sort of form a collective and bond, and it means a lot to them, I'm sure. We do a very rigorous training. Um, All of our volunteers get a background check 
And we make sure that they know that they can't proselytize, get financial advice, medical advice, legal advice, or anything like that. And specifically with Compassionate Contact Corps, it is totally virtual, just the phone and the video. Um, If they want to meet, we have different programs for that. Taylor says the U.S. counts 20 million veterans with as many as 9 million enrolled in VA medical benefits. We have about 20 million veterans out there, and 8 to 9 million are with the VA. I believe that at least 10% of them would benefit from this program. But it is new, and it's not something that's um, well known yet, and so that's why we're doing things like this roundtable and all of the briefings that we've been doing. Um, And so that's really how we grow it. Taylor says data pulled from just one veteran crisis call center revealed a high incidence of loneliness It has been observed that between 30, and I know this is a crazy range, but between 30% to 85 and 90% of the callers are not in crisis. They're just lonely. But we have people that call multiple times, and um, our volunteers on those lines realize that they're calling because they're lonely. And a program like Compassionate Contact Corps could totally address that. More of us, including veterans, are isolating behind all sorts of screens, increasingly remote from families and friends. So Dr. Indira Subramanian says with the holidays approaching, she prescribes this social practice. And instead of just sending a Christmas card, uh, call that person. And I've actually been, you know, putting my... uh, you know, actions, uh, you know, where I've been speaking and really doing that. And it's been pretty amazing to sort of reconnect with people that may have just received a card that I, you know, and, and people always, I tell my patients, you know, this is, I want you to work on this, call somebody that you might've missed out on. And look, I'm going to ask you about it the next time. And then they come back and tell me, you know, doc, I thought I was isolated. This guy hasn't even talked to anyone in two months. I'm so glad I picked up the phone and talked to him or my neighbor. I just knocked on his door and, you know, we grabbed a cup of coffee and it was amazing. He was just had such a big smile at the end. So these are such simple, you know, honestly, no cost, low cost, you know, sort of options. We checked with the Veterans Healthcare System of the Ozarks in Fayetteville. A collaborative team-based compassionate contact core program is under planning for initiation early next year. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Ahead today, Twitter and medical information. Not a good combination. I would strongly encourage all of your listeners now not to use Twitter as a source of information for any health or healthcare related issue. Dr. Joe Thompson with the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement in about 30 minutes on today's show. Happy holidays from the KUAF and Friends Holiday Giveaway. This is your chance to win a gift from one of many generous KUAF underwriters. Participants include Woodstone Craft Pizza, Botanical Garden of the Ozarks, the Commons Bar and Cafe at Theater Squared, and more. Winners announced Friday, December 9th during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large. Details and registration are available at KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. 2022 marks 100 years since the first woman served in the Arkansas legislature. The husband and wife duo, Lindsley and Stephen Smith, both former legislators, have spent the last several years collecting the stories of every woman who has served as a representative or senator in the state house for their book entitled Stateswomen, a centennial history of Arkansas women legislators. They joined me in the Bruce and Ann Applegate New Studio 2 to chat about their book and the perseverance of these early trailblazers. I started by asking Lindsley how much she knew about the women who came before her prior to her time in the legislature. Very little, like most people. Um, But being from Fayetteville, the voters of Fayetteville would send women to represent our districts uh, in this area. And when I ran for office in, I started in 2003, and the main part was 2004 for being in the legislature in 2005. And at the time, we had three women from Fayetteville. We had Senator Sue Madison. Uh, We had Representative Jan Judy, who was in the district, the heart of the downtown Fayetteville district that I ran for, uh, and Representative Marilyn Edwards. So we'd had women in, so I did know about them, but little else. Stephen, for you, grew up in Arkansas. Before meeting your now wife, what do you remember learning about women in state politics in the classroom? Well, I had um, 
her name's Kay Goss now, very well-known uh, national politics, uh, was teaching a political science class in state and local government that I had. And, and she was uh, presenting a much broader picture of politics than a lot of the professors were at that time in the late 1960s, I guess. But in, when, I, when I was a junior at the university, I, I filed for the legislature from Madison and Carroll County was the district at the time. And still to this day, Neither of those counties have elected a woman representative. So it's, it was a different uh, culture than what you run into in Fayetteville. But I also observed that it was women <laughs> who did all the work in political campaigns. The door-to-door stuff, the, you know, the 98% of campaigns are grunt work, and, and they were willing to, to do it, and it worked out. But, <clears throat> but when I was in the legislature beginning 1971, there was one woman in the Senate, Dorothy Allen, and two in the House who uh, were very good friends of mine, became friends of mine and sort of uh, mentors in a way and sort of bringing me into the legislative culture. <clears throat> that was Veda Shedd from Mountain Home yeah. and Bernice Kaiser from Fort Smith. And they were both delightful people and very effective legislators, and I learned a lot from them. You write in the book, Quote, women have not always been a part of the Arkansas story because women's influence, voices, and contributions to the state's history have been minimized, misinterpreted, or completely ignored in Arkansas history textbooks for generations. Let's talk about what state-approved history books have typically included when we think about the narrative of women in politics, especially in the early history of the state. Yeah, and Steve was the one who plowed through all those books. So I'll yeah, it was in, yeah, we looked at textbooks from 1889, I think, up till 1965 or 66. Um, and these are textbooks you would have used, yeah? Uh, yeah, including the one that I used, which also sort of promoted segregation. These were it most – then this is the official story of our state. It's endorsed by the – it's what the legislature wants to be teaching and things. And women were generally absent. I mean, some of them, there was not a women, woman's name anywhere in the – in the text at all. And, and uh, so they had a diminished role. I mean, if you read those textbooks and sort of looked at them, you would think that maybe women constituted 5% of the, of the population. I mean, you're just trying to guess on that. But the, uh, they were always relegated to the margins and usually in terms of the domestic sphere or whatever. So uh, when, when women were touted for, the, of course, Hattie Carraway, uh, the first senator was elected, that was about the only, you know, nod to politics. There wasn't any, only one even mentioned state legislators. There were plenty of derisive comments uh, written in newspapers early on questioning women's motivations to be involved in work outside of the home. One remark is made about women doctors whose husbands would be repulsed because they had to touch or see patients not for philanthropic motives but for filthy lucre. Another case was about a lady lawyer who was looked down upon because, quote, the family institution is repugnant to the idea of a woman adopting a distinct and independent career from that of her husband. And as I read these comments, it doesn't necessarily feel like it's something that happened 100 years ago necessarily, right? What's so great about this book is, you know, it's in two parts. The first is us going through since the 1800s to the present of the trailblazers whose shoulders the women in the legislature were standing on to get to where they were and being able to get in. But historically, the white patriarchy was not interested in empowering women. Women had to become creative in getting into the door, finding the door, and then stepping into it. Um, Women are now more accepted as candidates and legislative colleagues. So you you do have that. But I wanted to share some information. There are now more women holding seats in the Arkansas House of Representatives than the total number who served in the entire legislature during the first 50 years upon which women were able right. to be in office. A right. law had to be passed to allow them because they were prohibited by law to even run for the state legislature. Since women first served in the Arkansas legislature was 100 years ago this year, it was 1922, it was 42 years since that time that they were able to serve before Dorothy Allen became the first female state senator in Arkansas, and that was in 1964. 
1975, Representative uh, Carolyn Pollan of Fort Smith became the first Republican woman legislator. She served 24 years until her retirement, which was due to term limits. After 58 years, Irma Hunter Brown was the first black woman elected to the House, and she was later the first in the state Senate as well. And another significant change that reflected the state's political shift was that since 2015, there have been more female Republicans than Democrats. Even today, I will say there are only 14 of our 75 counties have been home to female state senators. Mm. And 28 counties in Arkansas have never sent a female representative to Mm. the Arkansas General Assembly. Yeah, one one of the things that made this especially difficult in the entire culture as well as the legal structure prevented women from having what we consider qualifications for public office. They were not well known. They couldn't be ministers. They couldn't be attorneys. Uh, They uh, couldn't get into med school. Um, Even in one case, a woman graduated first in her class in 1912. Yeah. And all the men were admitted automatically. Automatically admitted. And she was refused admission that um, because of the sort of uh, Fem Covart deal, women couldn't own money or sign deeds or take out loans, uh, so they couldn't advance in business. They could get jobs teaching and education, but there were male administrators and school board members and all those, and they couldn't even vote for school board. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, Earl. it was Earl Chambers. She was the first woman to graduate from the Arkansas Law School. She ranked first in her 1912 graduating class, and all of the male graduates in her class were automatically admitted to the bar, uh, an opportunity that she was denied yeah. being admitted to the bar. Uh, she spent an additional year of study at the University of Chicago Law School, but never got to practice law in Arkansas. However, she persisted, <laughs> and she became a state representative in 1923. One of the things that really stuck out to me and I think was driven home time and time again as you read the stories in the first half of the book is obstacles and overcoming those obstacles and how oftentimes women used these obstacles almost as an advantage, as a way to kind of trick the system and and to say, you know, a, a woman couldn't earn any of these jobs like a notary public or a postmaster if they were a single woman, but if they were divorced or they were a widow, that gave them an opportunity, right? So they were taking these terribly unfortunate situations and making, you know, very impressive lemonade out of these lemons, right? There were so many restrictions for a married woman. Right. But finding ways around that for uh, single women, including Mm -hmm. widows, would then do it and and open the doors. Right. Oftentimes what we saw in the book was, you know, the the trail was blazed by these widows and by these divorcees and and people saw that oh, a woman can do this because they're a human being and they can do this and if we allow her to do it, maybe we'll allow this white wealthy daughter of a, a official and we'll say that she can also do it and it led to it becoming more normalized, right? And these women of Arkansas who were these trailblazers, even before women could vote, even before they were allowed by law to, to hold office, how they were affecting um, Arkansas politics. I mean, their public service was outstanding, but they, they did so much for Arkansas and made their way in, you know, to like what you were saying, the postmaster positions or what um, notary publics. The 19th Amendment, uh, speaking about women's suffrage, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was passed in 1919, allowing women the right to vote. And Arkansas was only one of two former Confederate states to ratify the 19th Amendment. Why is this significant? Well, it's significant because of the um, important part of Arkansas history, that particularly early on, Arkansas was very supportive of uh, the rights of women and opening those up. Arkansas was ahead of many states when it granted white women the right to vote in the 1918 primary election. And Arkansas was an early ratifier, like you said, of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. But even though women could vote, you know, after the 19th Amendment, they couldn't hold elected office until the law was changed in 1921. And this becomes significant in terms of you know, it's the males in office, and for women to get rights, we needed the male support, and there were males in Arkansas who 
who were instrumental. And I will tell you, one of them um, is Governor Thomas McRae, which you really won't find much out about him, so I want to get his name out there. But he signed the law, uh, signed it into law in, in 1921, and on the same day, he appointed two women as notary publics. On the same day he signed that. In the spring of 1922, Governor McRae had two uh, unexpired terms in the Arkansas House of Representatives that he was to appoint two individuals to. He appointed two women. These were Frances Hunt of Pine Bluff and Nellie Mack of Warren. And I appreciate that you make the point to say that, you know, the 19th Amendment made it eligible for white women to vote, right? We still had a long way to go before we really saw a lot of outside of poll taxes, outside of literacy tests, outside of these other ways that really kind of opened the door for black women to have the same sorts of rights as white women, too. It goes back to the the very strong white male patriarchy and what I call patriarchal politics. One of the things Lindsay mentioned about, even though they were authorized to vote by the 19th Amendment, women couldn't run for office. I mean, Julia Ward Pennington of Fayetteville was nominated for the state senate hmm. in 1920, and um, Ida Joe Brooks was in, nominated by the Republicans for s- state superintendent of education, and Secretary of State refused to allow either of them to run for office hmm. on the advice of the Attorney General on that. And I don't want to try to m- mansplain any of this, <laughs> but, but the, there were, you know, who had the power uh, was all white men. Yeah. Or all men for the entire time. Um, so there, but there were a number of uh, what Brooke Coger calls suffragettes, hmm. men who were the allies of these women. And it's difficult to to break up between the the suffrage drive and, and what we're talking about here in the role for office. But we tried to meld them as well yeah. as we could. But Miles Langley, <clears throat> who was a Baptist minister from Arkadelphia in 1868, proposed a constitutional amendment to give women equal rights. Uh, it went nowhere, of course. Uh, Charles Bruff, for all of his other failings, was very supportive of, of the primary law and, and ratification of the 19th Amendment. And then, uh, of course, Thomas McRae is sort of an unsung person in all of this because he appointed the first two women, and you never ha- know how long it would have been before women were elected if, if yeah. that example hadn't been there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's what this book does, um, States Women, A Centennial History of Arkansas Women Legislators from 1922 to 2022. It, it, it does have the two significant parts. The first would be that history and pulling it in, you know, up until that 1922 period where the women were serving, and then some comments from the women through interviews that I've done. Part of the uh, project, which has been researching and then working on this book, has been, what, 15 years <laughs> at least that we've been working on that. And it involved a, a lot of people and a lot of research to provide our Kansans and our nation and really set a model of how other states could do the same. One of the things that intrigued me in the book was the regular pairing of the women's suffrage movement alongside the women's Christian temperance union. I was talking to my mom who is in her 70s and I was telling her, I said, you know, it's been really fascinating to read this book because your mother would have been old enough to have not been able to vote, not been able to have been in, like my grandmother would have not been able to take part in this. And I was telling her about the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And she said, and you know, I grew up in Illinois and she said, oh my God, yeah, like my my mom was a big member of that. And it was a really big movement of empowerment for women. And I, it's interesting for me to think of the pairing of this very progressive idea of women should be able to vote and hold office and this very conservative movement of people shouldn't drink and we should prohibit people from being able to drink. So this, you know, in this 2022 context, it seems to be a little contradictory, but it wasn't. Carrie Nation sort of becomes the icon of the of the WCTU and the whole prohibition movement. But it was, it was much more than that. I mean, if you read Francis Willard's work, who was the, the founder of it, it's just a magnificent progressive vision. But to think, you know, in, in the Northeast – women's movement started there, and it grew out of the abolitionist movement. Hmm. Uh, women had been involved in the abolitionist movement. They saw parallels between their own lives sure. and, and, and enslaved people. But that didn't happen in the South, of course. I yeah. mean, you know, the the, uh, the Grimke sisters were ostracized and had to leave South Carolina for their views on that. Yeah. But the, uh, the Women's Christian Temperance Union served that function in Arkansas. 
early on because it allowed, I mean, there were local organizations, they had officers, they had bylaws, they rules of order, they addressed issues of public concern. Mostly they were trying to limit the, you know, get legislation to limit the sale of alcohol. But it didn't take them long that the same women who were leaders in the suffrage, suffrage movement became leaders in the WCTU, and they literally took it over and, and started advocating for suffrage. And the same thing with the uh, Arkansas Federation of Women's Clubs. Strong voice. I mean, it's seen as, you know, yes. not seen as an advocacy group or anything, but they turned out to be very important in, yeah. in bringing that about. So it's, But women saw themselves as leaders in these organizations. They realized they had the skills it took, and they developed skills for others. Yeah. So it was, it was a great breeding ground for, it, for the women's movement. It's almost like a model UN in a way, right? <laughs> it's this idea yeah. of like, let's take this let's take this thing we're passionate about. Let's develop skills to, to discuss things, to debate things, to lead conversations, to understand Robert's rules of orders. Really kind of a, a breeding ground of learning how to be political leaders, right? When... A certain group of people are singled out, say in this case for their sex, to be denied citizenship rights of other people. They'll band together. And we do have a section in here called Women Organizing, where yeah. we outline that, you know, American Association of University Women, yeah, the Federation of Women. The But it, it is interesting when you see how how they found the common ground, how they found the connections and move, even though they were separate organizations and and generally fighting for different things they were all fighting for getting a voice fighting for being able to have a platform and boy were they great influencers while while men were the one who got to be in office and men got to vote and all the women the women were there 100 years from now the women who follow in your footsteps will be writing a second version of this book of the second century of women in leadership what do you hope they're writing about? I, I hope it's being as objective as we try to do and to tell their stories. Because one thing that we found is, and, and you know, you can't put everything in here. That's why, you know, I've donated over 50 um, audio um, I mean, audio and visual uh, recordings to the David Barber Pryor Center for Oral, Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Yeah. Because those tapes have even more just amazing story, and they're they're putting those, of course, online for anybody to go to. But I hope that future writings, and I know there will be them. I, I do. I'm, we're very proud of this book in that it it's almost like a reference book and everything. One, at least now we know who these amazing women were, and there are things that just jump out to you, such as their public service. Whether the culture or whether the law would not allow them to, to do things for Arkansas and their communities, they did it. And I think every single one of them had contributed, before they got in the Arkansas legislature, they started associations, they headed associations, they were out there working for their communities in Arkansas. And that was instrumental for the public to see the power of women you know, and, and how effective they are to dispel the myth that women can't think, women can't count, <laughs> women can't do these things, which was ridiculous. These women in this book showed how ridiculous that is. It, it's, it's funny to, to watch how much pride you have in this. It's, <laughs> it, it's, it's hard to articulate over the radio, but you're just radiating with so much uh, pride in this book. And it's really, oh, it's really cool to you. see. Lindsley and Stephen Smith are the authors of States Women, a centennial history of Arkansas women legislators. They'll also be speaking at the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History on Monday, December 6th at 6 p.m. Next week on our show, Matthew will spend time talking with owners of independent bookstores across the region to get ideas for the book lover on your gift list. If you have a young reader, you can add to their book collection tomorrow for free. The Springdale Rotary Club's first Santa Claus used book fair is from 11 until 2 tomorrow at the Jones Center. Karen Talbot-Jean is the chair of this book drive. She says more than 6,000 used books will be available tomorrow. These books, uh, are they, they range in reading levels and topics, and I believe that uh, we can find something to interest kids 
from uh, the time that they are interested in being read to probably up until at least 12 years old, maybe maybe a little bit beyond that. Who, who can come and receive a book, and how does it work? Well, this is open uh, to all children uh, in our area, and all they have to do is uh, come to the Jones Center between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. on Saturday, this, this coming Saturday, December the 3rd, and they can see Santa Claus and hear him read the night before Christmas, take pictures with Santa, and look through all these wonderful books and choose two per child to take home with them. And that, you, you pick two per child, and, and you don't have to pay anything. You don't have to pay anything at all for the books. 6,000 books, up to 6,000 books. How how does a Rotary Club get 6,000 books from one place to another? Well, there is, a, there, there is a company that we found that, I guess, rescues might be the best way to describe it. Uh, I think these books probably come from publisher overstocks, mm. um, you know, maybe going out of business sales, um, library discards. Um, you know, just just wherever uh, wherever used books may be found, and we were able to uh, to buy them very affordably and get them uh, shipped here to Springdale. And then, as part of our scavenger hunt, which we finished on October the twenty second, um, several weeks ago, our scavenger hunters, when they got to our stop at the Jones Center. Our scavenger hunters helped us sort through these books. So I think it's, it was a fun way to involve the community in our project, and I'm, I'm really excited to see the next step of it. What will Saturday be like for you? I am just so excited to see the kids, uh, see, the, see their little faces when they see Santa Claus, and Get to uh, get to experience, you know, the night before Christmas, read by Santa Claus, and then pick out some of these books. I think this is just going to be a great way to start off the holiday season. And finally, books that are not claimed are going to be used for the Springdale Rotary Club's book barrels. What is the what are book barrels? Okay, our book barrels are our version of the little free libraries that uh, you see. All over, all over Northwest Arkansas, and our book barrels are uh, are our version of that, and we try to keep those stocked year round with a variety of books for children and adults both. All right. Well, I'm going to be I'll be in Little Rock on Saturday, so I won't be there. But could you put in a good word with Santa for me? I will. I will do my best. All right, and again, it's 11 to 2 at the Jones Center, two books per child. Uh, Karen Talbot-Jean, the chair of the Santa Claus Used Book Fair from the Rotary Club of Springdale, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. We appreciate you, and we hope everyone will will come out and, and see us and see Santa Claus on Saturday. The Scott Family Amazium invites guests to explore unique gift options for everyone in the family at the museum store, Curiosity Corner online or in person. From puzzles to experiments to games and everything needed to make learning at home fun. Amazium memberships available for year-round visits. Information at amazium.org. Walton Art Center's 10x10 Art Series presents The Swingles Together for the Holidays Tour, Sunday, December 4th at 4 p.m. A renowned London-based a cappella group, The Swingles will present folk and jazz-inspired original songs, traditional carols, and festive favorites from five decades of holiday releases. WaltonArtsCenter.org or 443-5600 for tickets. This is Ozarks at Large. You had to know to look for it, but on Monday night, a one-sentence update had been made to Twitter's online rules, saying, quote, Effective November 23, 2022, Twitter is no longer enforcing the COVID-19 misleading information policy. Well, and, and just for clarity, they did not announce it. They just quietly ceased to have their COVID misinformation policy enforced. That's Joe Thompson, the president and CEO of Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. Twitter had been cited by the U.S. Surgeon General as one of the model policies for COVID misinformation uh, in the Surgeon General's report on misinformation last year. 
So this decision to terminate their COVID misinformation policy is really an open floodgate for snake oil salesmen uh, and a very real risk for people who use information off Twitter to inform their health or their healthcare decisions. Some of the most common disinformation talking points tend to revolve around vaccine efficacy and masking. We're soon entering our fourth year of COVID-19. What sort of misleading information are you most concerned about spreading on Twitter? I think as we continue to experience the effects of COVID-19, and particularly for individuals that continue to have symptoms, the, the long COVID individuals that have COVID symptoms, we're still learning about those symptoms and how COVID may affect us. And I believe we don't have good evidence-based treatments. And so I think it's an open you know, season for snake oil salesmen to try to promote treatments, drugs, strategies that have no information whatsoever to support their use and probably are used to, to generate sales of some you know, new treatment. If we remember, you know, we had COVID deniers that were on the Twitter platform. We had you know, misinformation about uh, whether COVID had really any risk. We had treatments. You may remember ivermectin, horseworm medicine that was widely promoted across the social platforms. And we had all the misinformation about vaccines, that it would cause you to be sterile or that it was actually putting a monitoring chip in your body. Um, you know, these platforms and individuals, you know, that use them are susceptible to being duped and the abandonment of responsibility by Twitter here to say it's now the user's responsibility. We disavow any obligation to see the source of the information or police misinformation about what can be a life or death situation, I think is really a, a problem that we need to be aware of. Tech pundits uh, and those most familiar with Musk would say that his attitude since taking over ownership of the platform have fit into this axiom of enragement is engagement, whether it's reinstating previously banned users, posting misinformation himself, or just claiming that the platform is in favor of, quote, absolute free speech. Do you worry that it's becoming a difficult place for people to get information they can rely on? I would strongly encourage all of your listeners now not to use Twitter as a source of information for any health or healthcare related issue. We have put on our website at ACHI.net trusted sources for COVID-19 treatment information. You know, I think there are trusted sources out there. Other social platforms are trying to identify what are and are not trusted sources of health and healthcare information. But I would really encourage folks to think about your use of social media for important decisions, not only in health and healthcare, but others. There are some ways to recognize misinformation. First, if it doesn't sound right, pause and say, why does this not sound right? If it's not heard it before and it's about, in this case, COVID-19 treatment, where is it coming from? Uh, can you verify the source? And, and then before you propagate it to your friends and family, verify it some way that it is actually a trusted source and it is actually a truthful um, advance in healthcare. Dr. Joe Thompson is the president and CEO of Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. Dr. Thompson, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Have a safe uh, week and get your flu, flu shot and your COVID shot if you haven't yet. December is the time of year when we reflect on what's most important in our lives. As you reflect on what brings you joy and connection, we hope you'll remember KUAF and your end-of-year giving plans. KUAF is here for you 365 days a year with vitally important information and moments of surprise that enlighten and entertain. Every one of those moments in 2022 was brought to you by a fellow contributing listener. Do your part to keep excellent radio available in our community by giving during the Season of Giving fundraiser beginning Monday, December 5th. It's now up to a federal judge to decide the fate of a challenge to Arkansas's law banning gender-affirming care for people under the age of 18. Yesterday was the final day of testimony in the lawsuit brought by the ACLU on behalf of the families of four transgender teens. As the state wrapped up its defense, Dr. Paul Ruse, a pediatric endocrinologist from St. Louis, was called to contradict testimony presented by a witness for the plaintiffs. KUAR's Josie Lenora was in the courtroom and has more on Dr. Ruse's testimony. 
he went through um, a long litany of hormonal disorders and a long litany of explaining how every single hormone works in the body using Latin terms. His biggest point about uh, gender affirming care or the affirmative model of care, which he really railed against, um, he, was, he got pretty angry at certain points. And he said that he just doesn't think it's studied enough. And he went back on that a lot. He doesn't think that the studies are good enough. He doesn't think it's studied enough. Dr. Jack Turbin, who testified as an expert for the ACLU, um, had conducted a bunch of studies that he extrapolated on during the first week of testimony. Dr. Paul Ruse disagrees with Jack Turman's methodology and broke down each study piece by piece, explaining that he felt like it didn't control enough for people with mental illnesses and that he felt like it had been incorrectly gathered. He said there's no mo- biological measure of gender dysphoria. After cross-examination, U.S. District Judge James Moody Jr. said he'll likely issue a ruling in January. Arkansas was the first state in the nation to pass such a ban. A third flock of Arkansas birds is infected with avian influenza. The backyard flock in Arkansas County in the Delta follows detections in Madison and Pope counties earlier. Arkansas's Secretary of Agriculture... Arkansas's Secretary of Agriculture, West Ward, says the agency is working with poultry growers and the poultry industry to work against further spread. He says the state's poultry remains safe to eat. And the state of Arkansas is joining with a nonprofit, Education Superhighway, to develop best practices to address broadband affordability in the state. Governor Asa Hutchinson says more than 214,000 Arkansas homes have access to broadband but are not connected because of the cost. According to a press release, Education Superhighway will partner with the Arkansas State Broadband Office, housed within the Arkansas Department of Commerce, to plan, implement, and execute the Affordable Connectivity Program Awareness and Engagement Campaign. This is Ozarks at Large. With me on the phone from her office in Bella Vista is Becca Martin-Brown, features editor of the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Hello, Becca. Hi, Kyle. Here's hoping my voice doesn't just quit right in the middle of this. Do you have something? or I have something. Had. About the time we finished up the show at Arkansas Public Theater, right. I got sick. Okay. So we'll go forward. Bad news first. If you were looking to go to the production of Green Day's American Idiot that was supposed to open with Arts One Presents this week, Mm -hmm. it didn't. And it's not going to. And it's not going to. And we got notice on the 21st of November that they were canceling the show. But you should be getting an email for refunds. If you haven't gotten one, you should reach out to them. They hope to revisit it, but it won't be any time in the immediate future. Okay. Now there's the good news. There's a ton of Christmas stuff. <laughs> That's actually we, several metric tons of Christmas stuff. <laughs> exactly. Fort Smith Symphony has its Christmas concert tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And as John Jetter says, we are required by law to perform sleigh ride every Christmas. I have no problem with that. <laughs> I don't. But he's got a, a, he's got everything that you could want. They're doing the Nutcracker Suite, and they're doing Carol of the Bells, and they're doing Green Sleeves, and they're doing God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. 7 o'clock December 3rd, that's tomorrow, at the Art Best Performing Arts Center in Fort Smith. Tickets start at $25. The University of Arkansas is bringing dance back to University Theater. And this is a big thumbs up. They apparently have had, ever since like 2018, they've had a real resurgence in interest in dance at the university. And these are the first dance concerts that have been departmentally supported in more than 30 years, according to Michael Rhea, who's the chairman of the theater department. So they're going to have, they have several choreographers, and they're going to have an 80s jazz piece, and they're going to have a dream-based contemporary piece, and they're going to have a nostalgic piece set to country and bluegrass music. And then they're going to have students from the Arkansas Arts Academy perform, and Leela Beeson is doing a Butoh piece, and Karen Castleman, who is currently teaching at the UA, is doing a piece with the beginning modern and ballet classes. It's going to be a big deal. 
7.30 tonight and tomorrow, 2 o'clock on Sunday at University Theater on campus. Tickets, if you are an adult not affiliated with the university, are $20. Okay. And then if you want to see Elvis, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Carl Perkins celebrate Christmas, you can do that at the Walton Arts Center. This is the Million Dollar Quartet Christmas. It's actually not those real people, if you didn't know. <laughs> yeah, right. They're right. It's actors portraying those people and singing and performing. Well, set in the Sun Records studios. The Million Dollar Quartet, that production, that is inspired by a real live event, right? I mean, the four right. of them happen to be in, but this is really conjecture. Right. Yeah. I think this is inspired by the thought of what would it have been right. like if right. we were together for Christmas. But it should be a lot of fun, particularly if you're really enamored with those characters, people, icons. Exactly. Yeah, you get the idea. Yes. 8 o'clock today, 2 and 8 o'clock tomorrow at the Walton Art Center. Tickets for that start at $32. And then there's all the holiday stuff. Christmas Makers Market today and tomorrow. Main Stage Creative in Eureka Springs. Winter Market today and tomorrow at the Momentary in Bentonville. A Nutcracker is presented by Northwest Arkansas Ballet. Seven today, one and seven tomorrow at the Air and Art Center in Bentonville. Arkansas Audio, Arkansas Audio Theater, Northwest Arkansas Audio Theater is doing Christmas in the Blitz, which I believe it's an original script. And this is seven o'clock today. World War Two, right? The Blitz. World War Two. Okay. Seven o'clock today at Emanuel Baptist Church in Springdale. Two o'clock tomorrow at Fayetteville Public Library. Seven o'clock tomorrow at Christ Community Church in Fayetteville. Three o'clock on Sunday at First Presbyterian Church in Springdale. This is all in today's What's Up page. Oh, and then Saturday, there's a cookie walk starting at 8.30 at Highlands United Methodist Church in Bella Vista. And Crescent Dragon Wagon speaking at 10 at the Bentonville Public Library. And Elkins is having a holiday expo with a food drive and a clothing drive and vendors in an open house at the library. And and Sunday, if you're in Eureka, Zark's Gallery is having a showing of artwork by a gentleman named Russell Harrison, who does really interesting character studies that he hopes might grow up to be in a graphic novel or a film. Okay. He does have autism, and he's a gamer, and he's a music fan, and he's a musician, and he's an artist. And I think this is his first one-man show. Oh, and where is this again? This is Sunday from noon to four at Zarks on Spring Street in Eureka Springs. Gotcha. And half of all of the sales of Russell Harrison's work will go to the Good Shepherd Humane Society in Eureka. Becca Martin-Brown, Features Editor of the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Thank you, Becca. Thank you, Kyle. Washington Regional's Her Health Clinic is committed to empowering all women by giving them the care and resources they need to take control of their own health. Gynecology services, prenatal care, childbirth, infertility treatments, and more are available at Her Health Clinic, located in Washington Regional's Women and Infant Center in Fayetteville. WRegional.com slash HerHealth to learn more. This is Ozarks at Large with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy New studio, which Lee Wood calls the Anthony and Susan Hoy terrarium. It is warm in here. It's toasty. I get low winter sun. Yes. Because of the angle. And so in the afternoons in the winter, it really heats up in here. And also, you like it this way. I mean, I come do. on. I do. <laughs> uh, Monday, which is not that far away, we start the 10th. KUAF Winter Fundraiser. I know. That's the mind-blowing when we figured out that we've been doing this for 10 years. So I think it's important that we should revisit for a second why we have a fundraiser in the winter. Um, in 2013, 10 years ago, CPB, uh, which is the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, uh, which we, have a, we get an annual grant from, uh, and that is a private corporation that's funded by public funds to fund public broadcasting, um, they redesignated us as a non-rural station because of the population growth. And uh, when you have that many new people, CPB figures we need to be, you know, getting money from those people, and they cut some of our funding. Right, money still goes to like Garden City, Kansas, or Cheyenne, Wyoming, but not 
places that are growing. Right. Not as much money. So we lost $66,000. That's an annual loss. Um, And it coincided with the first winter fundraiser, uh, which has been really successful and is also really fun. So it's the season of giving fundraiser. uh, So it has its own feel and it's right in line, you know, with the time of the year. We have the KUAF and Friends holiday giveaway, our website giveaway where underwriters offer gift certificates and tickets and all kinds of things. And you can go to KUAF.com and enter to win uh, each one of those prizes. You can enter all of them. That's right. Isn't that cool? Uh, And then we also offer gift memberships during the drive. So it's a great opportunity to uh, give somebody a unconventional gift, especially if they love public radio. And if they've never been a supporter, you can give in their name. We'll send them a note and let them know you did it. Uh, And then we have our fifth KUAF Live CD. Isn't that crazy? That's right. And that will be available to... uh for contributions of a certain amount. That's right. Um, so if you give $10 a month or $120, you can get the KUAF Live number five. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It's uh, a double CD. And my favorite thing about it this year is that one CD is all just tracks from the lunch hour concerts. Which have taken place in our lobby. Yes, for a year now. Yeah. And you'll be amazed how good they sound. They, they do. They sound fantastic. They're really energetic. You know, the lunch hour kind of plays off of the Tiny Desk concert series that NPR does. They're intimate and the crowd is involved, but it comes through in the recording. So they're a lot of fun to listen to. Our goal this time around? $50,000. That is the goal that we've had for this fundraiser um, for many years. I know I just said we lost 66 and we look for 50, but... We make up the 16 in other ways. We do. We do. And usually December is a good month. There's a lot of charitable giving that happens in December. Um, But you might remember that in September, during our fall drive, we were off our mark by about $45,000. So uh, it's important that we make this goal, uh, maybe a little bit more important than normal. And um, hopefully maybe we'll surpass it. So, uh, And I know that it's tough, you know. Inflation is really putting the hurt on people, and it's difficult when everything is more expensive. But we really uh, do appeal to those folks who can give, especially thinking about um, your giving, helping other people who are not able to give at this time. And already we've had people stop by and help us place things under the giving tree. Yes, and thank you. The giving tree is sort of the last component of the gift idea. We are um, doing the giving tree for Seven Hills Homeless Shelter this year, and we have a list of items that they're looking for, coats, gloves, warm socks, um, canned soup, and you're right. It was It's awesome to walk into the lobby and see that people have already started donating. Support KUAF.com. You can do it now, or you can wait till Monday morning at 6. You can. Thank you, Lee. Thanks. In the background is Mary LaRose doing an Eric Dolphy tune, Music Matador. And I'm Robert Ginsburg, your host for Shades of Jazz. We'll hear more from Mary as well as Dee Dee Bridgewater, Carl Allen, Tony Monaco, Warren Berthardt, and much more on this week's edition of Shades of Jazz, right here on KUAF 91.3 FM, listener-supported national public radio. Shades of Jazz begins at 10 tonight on KUAF 91.3 and tomorrow at 11 a.m. on KUAF 3. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Zero Mountain. I have been there zero times. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. You were driven north to Benton County from Fayetteville? Uh, yeah. yeah. you've been on zero. Okay, great. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Josie Lenora, and Becca Martin-Brown. Our appreciation to Lee Wood, KUAF's general manager, for spending time with us today. I'll be with you Sunday morning at 9 for Weekend Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Please be well.